like this trend that we've had these last two weeks of a Christmas hymn during our hymn selections. We'll have to see how long we can keep that up. We come now to the last section in Exodus 23. No, Jim, not the last section of Exodus. Many, many weeks to go. But we'll be wrapping up this portion of God's Word that we've looked at for a number of weeks, the book of the covenant, um, 20, verses 20 through 33. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we are thankful and grateful once again for this privilege to gather and to look at your word together. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days." I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods... It will surely be a snare to you. The word of our God, you may be seated. Now tonight, as I mentioned, we come to the conclusion of this book of the covenant. There was, again, the Decalogue given in Exodus chapter 20, followed by what we could call further exposition of those commandments for the nation of Israel. You could think of these few chapters of the book of Exodus as case studies to help the children of Israel learn how to take the principles, the guiding principles of the law of God, and work those things out in life together. The last time you might remember that we talked about some of the feasts that the children of Israel were to celebrate when they came into the land of promise. Now, the only way that they could obey the Lord God in keeping those various feasts of harvest was, of course, if the Lord actually brought them into the land. How could they have a harvest festival living in the wilderness with nothing to harvest? 
the only way that they could possibly obey God in keeping those festivals of harvest was if the Lord first brought them into the land, making good upon his promises. And so their ability to keep those feasts of harvest presupposes the Lord's ushering into that land, evidence that God will make good upon his providence, upon his provision of the land. And so tonight in this section that we could think of as sort of an epilogue to the book of the covenants, the Lord actually makes more spectacular promises to the people of Israel. In case it weren't enough that they would feast upon the harvest of the land, the Lord makes these wonderful declarations about how He will accomplish this, how He will bring about victory into the land to grant them entrance. And so that's really the main theme if we were to have sort of a sermon title for this section tonight. It is the promise of entrance. Now remember, when we think of promises of God, no matter how unbelievable those promises might seem, no matter how good those promises might seem even too good to be true at times, we can bank upon them because of the giver of those promises, because of who the Lord is. Our God is faithful. Our God is true to His Word, and so we can believe, and we can trust, and we can worship in wonder and awe, knowing that He will be true to His Word. Now, an important interpretive tool when you read through historical narratives like this is to look for ongoing spiritual lessons that are being taught. What promises and what comforts do we find from the Lord that are still relevant today. There's a lot that God says here that, of course, is for the nation of Israel as far as entrance into the land of Canaan. But we want to think as well about what sort of ongoing principles remain, what sort of principles continue as God guides His people today. So the first thing that we learn from the text is that God promises to be present with His people. This is our first point this evening his promise of his presence. Now, you may have noticed as we read that there's this refrain throughout this passage in which the Lord says that he will go before his people. Let's look again just to see how pervasive this is in this section. Look again at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you into the place I have prepared. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you into the land… Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all these people with whom you will encounter. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you to drive out those within the land. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply. Verse 30, Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And then at the end of verse 31, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Now, part of what the Lord is saying here is, of course, that He will precede His people into the land. He will go in front of them, we might say. And the Lord here is showing that His presence will be with His people in a most tender and caring and even shepherding manner. But at the same time, it is a fearful and awful thing to stand before the living God. 
for he will bring judgment upon the inhabitants of the land. And so the Lord will go ahead of them, really paving the way, we might say. Well, it's this image at the same time of a divine warrior fighting on their behalf. But there's also, for God's people, an image of tenderness, shepherding. A shepherd does not drive his sheep, but a shepherd leads them, we might think, forging that way ahead of them, dealing with any danger or uncertainty before the sheep arrive. He will go first, and they will follow. And so some seven times they are told that the Lord will go before them. So there can be no doubt He will be with them. He will do it. He will go before them in His most powerful presence. The Lord will lead the way. He will establish the path. He will bring victory because of His unchanging and ongoing presence with His people. And notice that the presence of God is in this person of the angel who will go before them. Now, this is not just an angel, as spectacular as that would have been, but this angel possesses divine prerogatives. Note in the opening verses of this section how he will speak with authority, and they are to obey his voice. He has the ability to pardon transgression, to forgive sin, or to implement justice and wickedness. He has the power to drive out of the land the most formidable of enemies. And this angel clearly has divine attributes, one who is identified with the Lord Himself and yet distinguished from Him. In fact, this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. This is the eternal Son of God. One commentator that I read put it like this, here are two great truths in this passage. He is the accompanying angel and the forerunning terror. Both the angel and the terror are the Lord Himself. When the angel speaks, it is the Lord who speaks. And when the terror drives them out, it is the Lord who is driving them out. Now, we've encountered this angel before. Turn back, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3. It was here in Exodus 3 that this angel of the Lord spoke with a voice of authority to Moses from the burning bush. Let me read here, just beginning in verse 2 of chapter 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so, notice how this angel of the Lord, as we read in verse 2, is the Lord Himself equated with the voice of God. And in chapter 14, this angel of the Lord is the one who led the children of Israel to the edge of the Red Sea. And as the Egyptian army came bearing down upon them, 
that angel of the Lord moved behind the children of Israel to protect them, creating darkness and confusion, throwing the enemies of Egypt into disarray while bringing light and provision as He parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to walk across on dry ground. And so, the angel of the Lord again and the Lord Himself are equated there in Exodus 14. And so, the promise here in chapter 23 is that this same angel will go with them and before them into the land. It is a presence that will always be there. And I think for us, we ought to really dwell upon the remarkable comfort that in our own lives, this promise remains, that the Lord our God is with us. Joshua 1 verse 9, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Zephaniah three seventeen. the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus Himself in that great commission says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. There certainly are times in our life in which it feels like the Lord is not with us. There may be circumstances and horrific evils in this world that seem contrary to this reality, but we walk by faith. We believe in the Word of God that our faithful and tender Savior is with us wherever we go. He truly goes before us in every single step that we take in this earthly life. And then notice in the text how God also promises not only His presence, but His protection. This is the second main thing that we notice about the Lord God, that He is protecting His people. Now, of course, this is not a presence that goes with you as though this is something that merely warms your heart, but it is certainly comforting to know that God is with us wherever we go, but our God cannot be divided into parts. And so, if God's presence is with you, then that means His entire unchanging, most powerful nature is with you as well. In all of His might, in all of His strength, in all of His loving protective hand. He will guard His people. He will watch over them. He will bring them to this place of promise, that place of rest. So, we could think here of God's preserving hand. Think of it as an impenetrable shield about them, protecting not only Israel, but protecting us, protecting us from our enemies, bringing us safely to our heavenly home. And this protection of the Lord is in the form both of leading and guiding while also blotting out their enemies. And God's people are to respond to the Lord's wonderful protection by showing their allegiance to God, destroying those idols and places of false worship as we read in verse 24. As they walk in obedience to the Lord, He will continue to protect them. And this same protecting hand of the Lord is with us as well. And in ultimate sense, there is nothing that can harm our eternal souls. And this is what oftentimes angers the enemies of God, because the followers of Christ can be unflappable in the face of persecution, because our hope is not tethered to the things of this world. This life may be filled with great hardship. 
This life might be filled with unspeakable tragedy that we have all read about this past week with our brothers and sisters in the Lord in Nashville. But it is this hope that undoubtedly speaks words of comfort to them. The the eternal souls of those dear ones who went to go be with the Lord are in the presence of their Savior, that there is truly nothing that can take us from His grip, that He will protect me for all of eternity. When you struggle to remember such things, when you struggle to remember the Lord's protection, when, again, circumstances don't seem to line up with that conviction, you can keep in mind a couple of psalms. Psalm 18 and 118. It's a good psalm to remember, both of them. Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Verse 30 of that same psalm, he is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear what can man do to me? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8 writes, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And along with the Lord's presence, along with His protection, notice also in the text how the Lord promises victory over their enemies. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And notice how the Lord promises victory in several ways. Verse 27, in my terror, I will throw them into confusion. We might think of how the Lord does just that in places like Judges chapter 7, under the leadership of Gideon, how the Lord stirs within the minds and hearts of the Midianites, causing them to turn upon one another. Or Second Chronicles chapter 20, when enemy armies come from Edom against King Jehoshaphat, and the Lord causes them again to turn upon one another. In both instances, and many more throughout Scripture, defeat seems to be imminent, and yet the Lord has been in control all along and brings victory. But not only will the Lord throw their enemies into confusion, but notice in verse 28 how the Lord speaks of victory here. I will send hornets before you to drive them out. Now, of course, the Lord is perfectly capable of sending literal swarms of hornets, but this could simply be an allusion to the Lord creating fear in the hearts of the enemies, like we read about under the leadership of Joshua when he brings them across the Jordan River. And so it is not the strength of man that brings victory. It's not in any way the insight or ingenuity of the armies of Israel that brings to them victory, but it is the Lord alone who is victorious. And then God goes on in verse 29 to say that this displacement of these enemy nations will come in the form of a gradual displacement. Certainly, there will be victory, but this is a victory that will come over time. It will not happen in one night. Now, this will be an utterly critical lesson for Israel to learn so that they are watchful, so that they are vigilant and stay on guard. Now, let's think here for a moment about this little-by-little displacement. 
Now, notice that God says that for the children of Israel, this is actually for their good, that the land would remain fertile, that it would not be overrun by wild beasts. But we might think, humanly speaking, doesn't it seem like the best thing for the children of Israel is for God to just immediately decimate all of the enemies within the land? If there are all of these potential obstacles that will tempt God's people, that will entice them to forsake the Lord, then why not just wipe them out all in an instant and pave the way for God's people? Wouldn't it be much more desirable in our own lives to be finished with sanctification in a moment, to not have the daily struggles and temptations that we deal with? Why does it have to be little by little in our own lives? Why this painstaking process of slowly driving out the occupants of the land? Why the painstaking process in our own lives of gradually dying to sin and slowly growing in obedience? This is the very nature of sin, and it helps us to see that we need the Lord our God every single day. Just as these pagan nations are not simply going to pack up their bags and leave their homes and give up easily. Sin does not give up its hold upon us without a fight. But the Lord does not abandon the children of Israel to fight on their own, and He certainly does not abandon us to fight indwelling sin on our own. Robert Lethem, in a wonderful book on the Holy Spirit, says this, as depravity is total, impacting every faculty, so does the Spirit pervade our entire being, overcoming the impact of sin, not all at once, but gradually throughout our life until the eschaton, that is, until the end of the age. We will be entirely and visibly transformed on that day. Bit by bit, the Spirit clears up the mess of our broken lives until the time when we will be like the glorified Christ. And so, we are very much like the children of Israel, aren't we? Saved from slavery, but waiting the completion of our salvation. Redeemed in Christ with still enemies before us to face. Striving to be sanctified as we struggle to live in this world against the flesh and the devil and the enemies around And yet our confidence is that we will be victorious because we belong to the living God. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so the Lord promises His presence. He promises His protection. He promises His people victory. But God promises even more. Fourthly, He promises His abundant provision, and it is provision in the form of life and blessing. Now, there's the wonder of of the blessing of food and water that we read about in verse 25, and of course, we know they will be ushered into a land flowing with milk and honey in which there will be food and provisions in abundance. And God goes on to promise that sickness will be removed. They will have healthy and fertile offspring and long life. And so, these images of provision, health, 
and life and abundance and fertility and prosperity, these are all blessings that were in the garden before sin came into the world. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but just think for a second here. Where has there ever been a time in history in which there was an abundant level of provision to this level? When did Israel ever experience this type of life and health and abundance and prosperity? You read through the books of Joshua and Judges and Samuel, and you see weakness. You see times of drought. You see persecution from enemies. How does that reality line up with the promises of God? Well, as I said, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But let's notice first how the Lord concludes this section there in verse 31. You must drive them out. You shall not make a covenant with them. Because to make a covenant with these pagan nations would mean that you would have to acknowledge the existence of the gods they worship. And of course, there are no rival gods other than the Lord alone. Verse 32, by pressing the people to be faithful and watchful, the Lord is helping them to see that there must be no compromise with false worship, no compromise with indwelling sin. And so for us, we are to be watchful over the ways in which sin seeks to take root within our own hearts. Perhaps we tell ourselves in times of discouragement that it's okay to dabble a little bit in self-pity. Perhaps we convince ourselves that it's okay to cut corners at work because we're not paid adequately or treated with respect in our vocation. Perhaps we convince ourselves it's okay to enjoy a bit of gossip, shade the truth just a bit. But when it comes to sin, when it comes to the consequences of sin in our life, we must adopt a zero-tolerance policy because all sin, no matter what it may be, has the ability to take root within the heart, to become a snare and to entangle and deceive. John Owen, who's written some wonderful things, who was a master at the inside of the human heart, says that as believers in Christ, we are free from the condemning power of sin, yet it ought to be our business every day of our lives to be killing the indwelling presence of sin that remains. Owen famously said that we daily ought to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit alone that we are able to do so. And of course, we always have to keep in mind that this entire generation who hears this word of the Lord, who says, as we'll see next time in chapter 24, with great enthusiasm, that they will do all that the Lord tells them to do, they all die in the desert because of their rebellion and unbelief. And so that begs the question, did God fail to keep His promises? These are promises that, again, seem to be way over the top. When did such things come to fulfillment? There are some wonderfully spectacular things that are said here, but is this one of those times in which promises are just too good to be true? When do they actually come to pass? When do they have this level of prosperity that's spoken of here? And as you read through those Old Testament narratives, you have to ask yourself, when did that angel of the Lord come? 
When did he appear? When did he speak to the people? When did he do these things? Where in the following narratives of the Old Testament do we find this spectacular work of the angel? Yes, there are these provisional components of fulfillment in Joshua and Judges, but the angel of the Lord appearing in this fashion that is spoken of here in Exodus 23 does not happen for hundreds and hundreds of years in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who takes flesh upon Himself, not provisionally, not temporarily, but permanently. And so, the presence of the Lord, the protection of our God, the victory of the Lord our Savior, and the provision that we read about here are all found in Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, in Luke 9, the Father speaks from the heavens, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to Him. A refusal to listen to Him will incur wrath and judgment. In Mark 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic, something that is remarkable in and of itself, He goes on to forgive the man's sins. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus drives out demons, raises the dead, heals the blind, defeats the evil one, and is, of course, victorious over sin and death in his own resurrection from the grave. Again, verse 20 of our text, "'Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place I have prepared.'" Jesus in John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so all of these wonderful promises of the Lord made so long ago find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus in a much deeper, a much richer, a more lasting manner than merely receiving a a piece of property in the Near East. And we're talking about a prophetic word that is fulfilled in the earthly ministry of our Savior that will come to fruition in the age to come. One of the things that my wife and I miss most about living further west is viewing the spectacular mountains of the Rocky Mountain Range. If you've ever had that experience, especially driving from east to west, you go through the Midwest, the plains, and then you see off in the distance the mountain range beginning to appear before you. And when it comes into view, at first it looks like a continuous, seamless range before you. But as you get closer and you move through those first peaks, you realize that there are miles and miles between those majestic mountains. And you see, what the Lord promises here in Exodus 23 begins to find some provisional fulfillment under the leadership of Joshua, but the definitive work is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, we still journey forward toward that place of final rest in the new heavens and in the new earth where we read in Revelation 21 that all sorrow and death and mourning and crying and pain will be removed, and the only thing that will remain is holiness and righteousness and truth.
And it's that future reality that serves to spur us on in this present age. John Newton writes, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by God's grace, I am what I am. And this is our hope. This is our security. This is our joy of belonging to our Redeemer. And so may God enable us, by His persevering grace, to press on toward that end. As we look to the one who is always present with us, protecting us, giving us victory over sin and death, and in his most wonderful provision, ushering us into our place of final rest.